Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 24 and verses 1 through 12. First, let me pray. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke as he wrote, that he might illuminate our minds and our hearts, that we might hear and believe and be forever changed. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, of course, the they, or the women. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter, you got to love Peter. Peter, he rose up and he ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Several years ago, my phone rang. It was my mother's doctor. He was she had just had her yearly physical, and he was calling to tell me to take mom immediately to the hospital because her heart was trying to shut down. At that time, my mother lived next door, so I went to tell her and to tell her, let's get to the hospital, but there was a problem. She didn't believe it. She just didn't believe it. She insisted, and my mother knows how to insist. She insisted, she insisted that no one in her family had heart problems, which I can personally testify isn't true. So I kept talking, finally persuaded her to come with me, and it turned out that she needed a pacemaker and 
now in her 98th year, she still lives up at Thrive. But at first, it was unthinkable. It was unthinkable to her, unthinkable what the doc, doctor was saying. Just simply unthinkable. Well, as you're well aware, many find what scripture teaches unthinkable. I mean, the idea that God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth or that we are all part of a fallen sinful race deserving of God's judgment. I mean, who believes that? And likewise, even in regard to Jesus, while many might insist that they have great respect for Jesus, and, and many do, they find unthinkable his claim to be the great I am or the, the biblical teaching that we were made by him and, and for him and that, and that he being God was born of a virgin and that he came to deliver us from sin's curse and power. And as far as what you're told here in Luke chapter 24, what you're told here in Luke chapter 24, that, that, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and I want to keep emphasizing to you this word resurrection. To be resurrected from the dead doesn't mean to rise from the grave as a ghost or a spirit. The word specifically means to rise again forever restored to an eternal physical existence. That's what the word meant. No ifs, buts, ands, or maybes in the first century. And in regard to that, of course, most find that idea unthinkable. I mean, the disciples, they refer to it as, verse 11, an idle tale. The disciples, they referred to it as an idle tale. Most, many I should say, perhaps find this whole idea of the resurrection to be at best a piece of religious propaganda written to validate the writer's faith in Jesus. Now, we all believe certain ideas. We all believe certain ideas because they make us feel better, because they give us hope. I mean, I'm sorry, but I hopefully believe the Cardinals will win the pennant this year. And I assume you may hopefully believe that your favorite football team will win big this fall. But, you know, those, those beliefs, those are just fun. Uh, in, in truth, they don't really matter. Not really. Well, whether the cards win the pennant or not matters. But the, the rest of those things don't really matter. Okay? Um, but then there are things I know. 
I know, for example, that in 2011, the Cards did win the World Series. I know that, because I have to tell you. The sixth game of the World Series, that World Series, I was there. I was there. Greatest game in the history of baseball. <laughs> now, you laugh. You look it up. I was there. Okay. And, and you know, I mean, you know, whether you're an LSU fan or not, you know they won the national championship of this past year. And, and if you believe, because you know it's a matter of historical fact, that's different than believing just for fun. And if you believe that it's a matter of historical fact that all the scripture teaches about Jesus is true, is a historical fact. It changes everything. For knowing who he is, why he came, why he's coming again, you bow before him, you confess and repent of your sins. Uh, by grace, through faith, you embrace him as your savior, your Lord, and your king, and, and then you rise up to serve him as you serve others in his name. But if scripture is not historically reliable, if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, if Jesus didn't accomplish what scripture teaches, then we should just pack up and go home. We should just pack up and go home. But as I look around and have gotten to know at least some of you, I know that you do believe and you do know what scripture teaches is true because the Lord has graciously gifted you with a faith, a faith based upon historical facts. And I also know that many of your hearts break because of those who don't believe and who don't believe or, or, or know that these things are true. And for them you pray, even as Jesus prayed for Peter, he told Peter, I'm gonna pray for you, why? Because Peter, you're about to deny me three times. Jesus prayed for him. Surely, Jesus must have prayed for many of his closest followers because he knew. Jesus knew they didn't believe or understand that what he told them was about to happen. I mean, just a few days earlier, back up in Galilee, he told them, I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, abused, and killed. But on the third day, I will rise again. And yet, as many of you know, familiar with that portion of scripture, none of them believed or understood what he was saying. None of them believed or understood what he was saying. Now, why was that? I mean, I get a little arrogant when it comes to the disciples. 
until I stop and remember who I am. I mean, why, why did they struggle so? I could think of at least two reasons. First, it's because they just couldn't believe that he would be betrayed, arrested, abused, and killed. I mean, they expected their long-promised Messiah, their coming king. They expected him to overthrow the Romans and reestablish David's kingdom. And you'll remember, I mean, when Peter hears Jesus say he's going to be betrayed, arrested, abused, and killed, Peter takes him inside and said, Lord, don't worry about it. None of us are going to let that happen. For which Jesus sharply rebuked him, even calling him Satan. And, and furthermore, I mean, they struggled to believe all of this, struggled to believe what Jesus is telling them about the fact that he's going to be resurrected on the third day. They struggled to believe that because they have no idea what he's talking about. They have no idea what he's talking about. And now, now the unthinkable has happened. Jesus has been betrayed. He's been arrested. Peter's bravado has turned to fear. Three times he's denied even simply knowing Jesus. And of course, here they are, and what do they know? They know that Jesus has been tried, condemned, abused, tortured, nailed to a cross, that he's been ridiculed and mocked and insulted by the many who gathered to watch the spectacle. It's interesting that John is the only disciple we know for sure who stood at the foot of the cross. I don't know about the others, but, but whether or not they were there, they all knew that at high noon, day became as night, that the veil of the temple had been torn from top to bottom. They knew that Jesus was dead. So put yourself in their shoes. I mean, think about the situations you faced in life that just simply leave you confused and bewildered. Now think about these dear men. They are overwhelmed. They are disappointed, they are utterly confused. Been there, done that. That's not unfamiliar to me. But now at the end of Luke 23, a few women watch to see where Joseph of Arimathea will bury Jesus and having learned the location, they return home to prepare spices to anoint Jesus' body to keep it free from the stench of death. But now just keep constantly in mind, no one is looking for Jesus to be resurrected from the dead. Why? Because no one, and I'm not talking about the 21st century, no one in the first century believed a man could be resurrected. That is, could return from the dead to live forever in a fully human body. No one believed that. That was the story of fairy tales. And today, I mean, no matter how highly some might claim to respect Jesus as a great teacher, 
Most consider the story of the resurrection a fabricated story, perhaps like the disciples, an idle tale, a myth, maybe a piece of religious propaganda, or perhaps simply a mistaken report. And why is that? Because today, just as in the first century, many are confident that their life experience teaches them that no one returns from the dead to live forever in a human body. That simply doesn't happen. Now what Joseph of Arimathea, the disciples, the women, what they know is that Jesus is dead. I don't know what to make of this, but I find it interesting that it's not the disciples. Instead, it's Joseph of Arimathea and the women who are concerned to give Jesus a proper burial to preserve his body from the stench of death. Not the disciples. I mean, maybe they were too scared or confused to do anything. But none of them, not any of these people, including Joseph and the women, none of them, believe that Jesus will soon be resurrected. None of them. Now, I kept talking last few weeks about it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Well, Sunday's here. Okay. Now, it's the first day of the week. It's the third day since Jesus was buried. And here come some women and they're carrying perhaps 100 pounds of spices, and they're making their way to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body to keep it from putrefying. And as they approach the tomb, they find the stone blocking the entrance rolled to one side. So what do they think? Well, we know at least from one of the other Gospels that Mary Magdalene thought someone had come and moved Jesus' body. But whatever they're thinking, they entered the tomb and they find it empty. And what is their response? Did you notice the language that Luke uses? What's their response? Excitement, awe, tears of joy? Well, Luke tells us in verse 4 that they were perplexed, that is they wondered what it meant that the stone would be rolled away from the entrance and the tomb itself would be empty. They enter the tomb and as they stand there, perplexed, wondering, suddenly, perhaps like a bolt of lightning, two men stand before them. Now, we know from the other Gospels, they're angels, messengers sent from God. And it's perfectly understandable when Luke tells us that the women are fearful and that they fall on their faces. So many of us wish to have an angelic vision. It would scare the pot diddly out of you. I mean, you need to appreciate that. 
It is a frightening thing to come face to face with a messenger sent directly from God. The men, I mean these angels, they asked the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? <laughs> He's not here. He's risen. Remember what he told you. What he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then in Luke 24, verse 8, you're told, the women remembered. They remembered his words. It's interesting, their progression. In verse 4, they're perplexed. Verse 5, they're frightened. In verses 5 through 7, they find themselves questioned and instructed by angels. And then in verse 8, they remember. They remember what Jesus told them. So what do they do? Well, they go to tell the 11. Of course, that's the 12 minus Judas Iscariot. They go to tell the 11 and the others that the grave is empty and Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And what do the disciples do? They don't believe it. They considered an idle tale. Why? Now I'm about to become incredibly politically incorrect. Why don't they believe it? Because they're women. And you go, what? That's exactly why at first they don't believe it. Jewish law insisted that the testimony of a woman was unreliable. It's not my law. That's not my opinion. Don't ever tell my wife that was my opinion. <laughs> but Jewish law insisted that the testimony of a woman was unreliable. And furthermore, the story is just incredible. I mean, I mean, most Jews believed there'd be a general resurrection at the end of the present age, but none believed that such a resurrection would take place in the middle of history. Yeah, I mean, they knew. They knew Jesus had raised at least two men from the dead, but now it's Jesus who's dead. He, he had power to raise others back to a temporary existence in this world, but as everyone knew, no one experiences a resurrection that is a return to an eternal and fully physical existence. No one experiences that in this present age. No one. It's unthinkable. So what did all these people think Jesus meant when he told them that he'd rise again on the third day? I'm not sure, but I do know that none of them were looking for Jesus to be resurrected. Now, I want you to hear this story, and I want you to put this story 
in the first century context, the cultural context of the first century, okay? And this is what I want you to, this is important. This is one of those things that for a historian helps validate the story that we are told. No one in the first century would find the details of this story as presented in Luke or Matthew, Mark or John. No one would find the details of this story persuasive. I mean, they didn't walk around telling this story and have people go, I knew it. It's a great story. I believe that without a moment's hesitation. That was, this story does not fit the first century culturally. I mean, first of all, who pays attention to what a bunch of hysterical females have to say? That was the attitude of the first century. And yet here are the gospel writers and their first witnesses to the resurrection are women. Okay? And furthermore, no one ever heard of someone being resurrected before the end of the age. I mean, so the question, the, the obvious question is, I mean, why didn't the gospel writers find a more culturally acceptable way to tell their story? Well, I would suggest, obviously, it's because they're telling you what in fact happened. This was not a story that anyone in the first century would have found easy to believe. I mean, not even the disciples find this story easy to believe. I mean, at first they, they, they judge the story that the women are telling to be nonsense. And furthermore, any good Jew knew that no one would be resurrected until the end of the age. But in verse 12, Peter, love Peter, all his strengths, all his weaknesses. Good old Peter, good old impetuous Peter. He goes to see for himself whether the stone is rolled away and the grave is empty. And what does he find? He finds the stone rolled away and the grave empty. He goes in. He goes into the tomb and inside the tomb, Peter finds the strips of linen in which Jesus' body was wrapped lying by themselves. Now, why is that important? Because Peter knew that if someone moved Jesus' body, if that's the reason the grave is empty, is because someone moved Jesus' body, they wouldn't have first unwrapped him. So having seen all this, Peter leaves the empty tomb marveling. I love that. Marveling at what has happened. Now all of this prepares us for what follows in verses 13 through 35 that we will consider together next week, which is for me one of the most intriguing stories in all of scripture. But here we are. What's going on? Can you believe it? My mother didn't believe what the doctor was telling her, but it was true. And many struggle with what 
Scripture teaches. But it's true. Jesus died, was buried, grave sealed, but now the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, and Jesus is resurrected from the dead. How important is this? This is how important. Paul says, Paul views the resurrection, Paul views Jesus' resurrection as of central, central importance. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And we, of all people, are to be pitied. Well, can you believe it? The grave is empty. Jesus is resurrected. That changes everything. And I know that many, if not most of you, by God's grace, through the gift of faith, you believe and you understand that what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is absolutely true because Paul writes that it is of first importance. It is of first importance. That according to the scripture, Christ died, was buried, was raised on the third day. And as we will see in a couple of weeks, that he appeared to many. Can you believe it? I do. And I know that many, many, many of you do. You know and believe this historical fact, the fact of Jesus' resurrection to be of, of overwhelming importance. And therefore, I want you to listen. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be challenged to hear what Peter says about you in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what Peter says about you who believe. Peter says, you are a chosen nation. You are a holy people. You are a people belonging to God. To the God who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light and chooses you to declare his praises to all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we freely confess the challenge to believe all that we are here told. It is so overwhelming, so astonishing, so mind-boggling. So thank you for your spirit who opens our eyes and unstops our ears and transforms our hearts and refocuses our wills that we see Jesus risen from the dead, ascended to the Father's right hand, reigning and coming again. 
Father, may we love you. May we love your Son. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may we love the triune God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind as for the sake of your glory, we strive to love one another. In this we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.